you sit at the front and you don't know who's behind you. So when I sat down, there were about 20 of you. Now there's a lot more. So that's, um, that's good. Thank you to our worship team for leading us. Um, you did a great job. Let me start by introducing myself. Uh, my name is Daniel Whitehead. Um, as Gilbert said, I'm the Executive Director of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. Uh, I moved to Vancouver uh, four years ago uh, from England. Uh, I'm English, I'm not Australian. Um, I love Australians, but I'm not one of them. Uh, I moved here with my wife. Uh, you'll be happy to know I have, I'm the husband of one wife. Um, her name is Annie. Uh, she's actually the children's pastor at Tenth Church uh, Kitsilano in the Kitsilano congregation. Uh, we have a daughter, Evie, who's six, and a son, Jack, who is two. They're obviously at our church today where my wife is working. Um, I'm a graduate of Regent College. I graduated with my master's degree last year, and that's actually the reason I came to Vancouver, was just to study for a year. Uh, so that year has become four years, and we're now permanent residents, so that can last however long we want. I'm also currently working on a THM at Regent. Before coming to Vancouver, I was a senior pastor of a congregation on the south coast of England for about eight years. Uh, it's, uh, I'm from a town called Fairham, which is right next to Portsmouth uh, and Southampton. And as I said, I'm now the executive, executive director of Sanctuary, uh, which is why I've been invited to speak here today. At Sanctuary, we assist churches in navigating the topic of mental health by equipping churches with training and resources to help create churches that do indeed become sanctuaries for people's uh, lived experience, for people who are suffering. Uh, at Sanctuary, we believe the church should be, must be, the safest place for people to turn to in their hour of need. And I would commend you and thank you uh, to Gilbert and the leadership team for inviting me to speak on this subject uh, as Gilbert said, this is a subject that doesn't get spoken about enough. So well done for being brave and for inviting me in. I understand that you've been going through the Psalms. You've uh, been inviting various speakers to speak and uh, I'm going to be speaking on a Psalm this morning. And so I'm here this morning to spend a bit of time reflecting on Psalm 130 and all that it has to teach us about how we can respond when we are or those that we love are suffering in their mental health. So as I begin, I will just pray for us one more time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as creatures made by you, broken, small and humble, that you would ever call us into a relationship with your perfect self. And yet being so aware of our smallness, we also simultaneously know that you call us your children. What a gift it is to be known by you. In this place this morning we ask that you be Lord of all and that we rest in your Lordship as we discuss mental health and the struggles that many of us have. We acknowledge your goodness, your love and life in this place this morning. And we ask for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. So in times of despair, where we often don't know how to respond, where we can feel so alone, where we don't know how to let others in, 
but we don't know how to speak to God, I believe we can turn to Psalm 130. Or when we know someone who is uh, in despair, someone we love, we don't know how to respond to them, we don't know what to say, we can feel so inadequate in those moments. Because we want to say the right thing. We too can turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 can be our guide to teach us how to respond in times of despair. So I will read Psalm 130 uh, to us now. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The psalm starts out of the depths. But just what are the depths? In the Hebrew scriptures, the depths or the deep waters were like a metaphor or a poetic image of chaos. It would be like us saying, I feel like I'm drowning. I mean, you're not actually drowning in water, but your internal feelings of being overwhelmed are like drowning. Being in the depths has this same sense. Indeed, Psalm 69 uses very similar imagery. Psalm 69 uses these words, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where I have no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The folds engulf me. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Eugene Peterson in the message renders this, Help God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. Sometimes when I read scripture, I grew up in a Christian home, when I read the scriptures I can just kind of put this veneer of it's the Bible on it. And sometimes I admit I miss out on the fact that this was written by a real person going through very real suffering. good to reflect on that. Probably most of us in this room can remember a time in our lives where we felt like this. Like the bottom of our lives has gone. Like we have no foothold. Even if it lasted for just a moment. Because despair or being in the depths is part of what it means to be a human being. Last year I got a phone call suddenly one day uh, uh, out of the blue and um, It was from England. I could see on my phone someone was calling me from England. And uh, I expect, I normally know when people are calling me. We arrange when people are going to call. So I knew this wasn't going to be good news. Or that was my hunch. And sure enough, my mother was on the end of the phone and she said, I'm with your grandfather and he's dying and he's not doing too well. Pray. Pray that uh, he would go quickly. 
And so in that moment of hearing that news, uh, my grandfather, who I admired and was very close to growing up, in that moment, my mental capacity suddenly goes into turmoil. I start panicking. Uh, I need to get back to England, but I can't. I've got to look after my family and I've got work. And you start to panic. You start to despair. In that moment, it's hard to have a foothold in the same way that you would do normally. Now, for me, that moment of despair, fortunately, by God's good grace, only lasted a few hours as I had time to pause and reflect and recenter myself. But sadly, for many people, they are not able to recenter themselves as quickly because there can be a biological issue or a social issue in their lives that means that staying in that place of despair lasts a lot longer than a few hours or a few days. It can last weeks, months, years for some. But being in the depths, despairing is part of what it means to be a human. It is a myth that says we always have to be happy. Happiness is fleeting. The Bible says very little about happiness. That's a very recent idea that people want to pursue happiness. It is not a Christian ideal. The pursuit of happiness is not a Christian ideal. Let's be clear about that. Our faith speaks of joy. It speaks of shalom which are different, but that's for another sermon. But experiencing the depths, at least for some time, gives us a different way of seeing the world. It gives us insights that we would otherwise never have had. And when we look through history, when we look through the scriptures, we see people again and again being motivated by their despair. And I use the term despair, I think you could interchange it with depression. I think that's a fair call. I think the psalmist in Psalm 130 talks about the depths. You could just call that depression. The great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, a Christian who has shaped the way we think in the world, wrote most of his work whilst in the midst of depression. The Christian German reformer Martin Luther, who stood up for people against the then powerfully abusive Catholic Church. Why? Because he himself felt deep despair and felt their plight. Jesus went to the depths. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You cannot sweat drops of blood and not say you haven't been in the depths. Paul went there, Jeremiah, David, Jonah. This is part of being alive. It is part of being human. Now I need to acknowledge that there are different levels of despair or depression, as it has come to be known. And this depends on how long we stay there and how much of life we can participate in or not whilst we feel that way. But no matter how deep we go, this is a hard place to be. In the depths. And in it, we feel very alone. The psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Like us, the psalmist is in despair. And this psalm instructs us, it gives us a response for this time in our lives. And I, under no illusion that for many of us in this room today, we may be feeling despair at some level. Please hear me, if that's you this morning, 
you're not alone. You're not alone. There are many, many people, even in this building, who will be experiencing that too. So what does the psalm instruct us to do? Well, firstly, the psalm encourages us to cry out. Finding the courage to cry out. To say, I'm in despair, is the first thing that the psalmist does. When depression draws us into ourselves, into a silent place, the psalmist teaches us to break the silence of those depths and encourages us to cry out. Now, though this psalm begins in the first person, it says, out of the depths, I, I cry. It's important that we realise that this psalm was usually said together. As the Jewish people moved toward Jerusalem for the temple holy days and feasts, it is one of the psalms or songs of ascent. So, though this cry goes out from an individual to God, it is done so together, alone in community. The clue here is that we need to learn to speak out our despair for others to hear. And it takes great courage to cry out and be honest about how we're feeling. Will God judge me? What will people think of me? You know, there is so much stigma around depression and I would suggest more so for men. You know, in the Western world, the number one killer of men between the ages of 18 to 35 is suicide. It used to be car accidents, but it's now suicide. Our young men need to know that they can talk about these things. There is so much stigma, because depression is seen as a state of weakness. And of course, society requires masculine strength. And I think even more so for Christian men. You know, if I am depressed, surely I'm lacking faith in God. That's the lie that we hear. And it locks us in. It isolates us. It keeps our pain to ourselves. And we're never able to express it with the community, which is exactly what the psalmist does. I want to tell you this morning that I believe rather than a sign of weakness, it takes a lot of courage and strength to admit our emotions and to get through depression. Depression is stigmatised because we all fear it. We fear going there. Yet for those of us who walk the road of depression and are able to talk about it, we are the courageous ones. It takes a great deal of courage to stand against that stigma and speak up. And what about faith? Is acknowledging depression admitting an inferior faith in God? Well, again, Eugene Peterson writes, A Christian is a person who has not decided to ignore suffering or despair, but one who has decided to face it and live through it. That is his definition of what it is to be a Christian. It always uh, frustrates me when in the past in my life as a Christian, as a young Christian, you often get portrayed as being self-righteous. Oh, you Christians, you're so self-righteous. You think you're so much better than everyone else. I say, it's the absolute opposite. I know I need God. I know how weak and broken I am. And it's not that God is a crutch for me to rest on. It's just that he completes me and makes me whole in my brokenness. Christians are the very people 
who should cry out to the world that we are suffering, that we are in despair, that things are not okay and we need God's help. Peterson explains that to despair, uh, despair needs to be respected by the Christian community for do we not serve a Christ that suffered? Psalm 130 gives dignity to our despair. It is not something to be silenced in community before God. It is something to be spoken out. You know, Jesus was always an empowerer of the voiceless and the marginalised. In Mark 5, it's one of my favourite stories in the Bible. Jesus is on his way to heal someone and there's a big group of people around him. And there's a woman who's, uh, who's been bleeding for most of her life, which would have made her ceremonially unclean. It would have made her a social leper, someone who no one ever would have listened to, no one ever would have given her a voice. And in the throng of people, she reaches out in faith and touches the hem or the wing of Jesus' garment, just the edge. And she's healed. And what does Jesus say? Who touched me? Who did that? I felt power go from me. I think Jesus knew who did it. All of the disciples say, but Jesus, how can we possibly know who touched you? There's people all around you. And Jesus says, no, 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 someone touched me. I want the person that touched me to speak up. And I think he knew it was her, but I think he wanted her for the first time in her life to find her voice. And this time, every person is going to listen to you. You have a captive audience for the first time in your life where you've been shunned and pushed back. Now is your chance to speak up. Speak up and tell them what's happened to you. Jesus always empowered the voiceless. If depression is causing us to withdraw, to become voiceless. Think of the one who calls you to speak up and to speak of God in the midst of your struggles. You see, it is courageous to cry out to God and the psalmist leads us to cry out for two things. First of all, it encourages us to cry out to be heard. The psalm reads, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. In the midst of depression, we can feel like God is far away and we wonder, is he even listening? It is a time of brutal honesty about what we believe and what we don't believe. In times of despair, there is no pretense. In fact, uh, one person that Sanctuary works with said, I was just going along my life, living my normal life, when suddenly, all of a sudden, all my assumptions, all my presuppositions, and all of my values were called into question. Everything got tossed up in the air. I didn't know what to believe anymore. I didn't know what was true. So approaching God out of the depths takes great courage. It takes great faith. Because in spite of your doubts, we still cry out. We still cry out for help. Not knowing what is true and what is not true. That is faith. And this psalm encourages us to cry out to be heard. The second thing that the psalmist cries out for is the cry for mercy. You know, the psalmist in the depths has to remind himself and us that God does not keep a record of sins, that he is a forgiving God. You see, in the midst of depression, in the midst of the depths, people understand two things very well. As Christians, uh, in my experience, a Christian who's suffering with depression, 
will be acutely aware of the holiness and perfection and power of God. How unattainable God is in his holiness. The second thing they'll be acutely aware of because of the nature of their condition is their own failing. In fact, in the pit of despair, our own shortcomings are often all we can think about. Negative thoughts about ourselves circulate each minute and we wish we could just stop thinking. It's like a plague. It's exhausting. You see the danger of keeping these lies, these distortions to ourselves. How exhausting that can become. There's a lot of misunderstanding around the subject of suicide. But I tell you this, the people I have known and the people I know of who have died by suicide, they don't do it because they're selfish, they do it because they're tired. They're tired of having these thoughts. They're exhausted. Despair and depression leads us to a place where we can believe a lie that says God cannot accept me. We can become paralysed with fear, with an acute awareness of God's awesomeness and an acute awareness of our own failure. We can begin to doubt whether God will accept us. Now, of course, as standalone statements, God is holy. He is holy. I am a sinner. I am a sinner, saved by grace. And every human being alive needs to realise these things at some point. But what depression does is it twists and distorts this otherwise healthy sense of the holiness of God and it produces a crippling guilt and stigma causes us to keep it in and not tell anyone. It's a guilt that says, oh, but you don't understand, God can't forgive you. And this lies enough to kill a person's faith in God and kill a person's belief that they can ever recover and kill a person's faith that they are made worthy because of Christ. You see the subtle lie of the enemy. That's why we need to speak about it so we can remind each other of what is true. This is when we need others in our community to give us perspective. So if anyone is sitting here this morning, if you're feeling distant from God, let me assure you that you are loved and accepted by him. And he is closer than you think. Jesus always embraced those who were lowly in their own self-estimation. The people that Jesus rebuked were the lofty, prideful people who didn't think they needed his help. But anyone with an acute awareness of their own failings and his holiness were welcomed with open arms. You are accepted as you come before God. Cry out to him. He hears you and he is merciful. And even though you may not feel it, let me gently remind you, let us as a community remind you that you are loved that you are worthy because Christ says you are. So how should we respond as a church community? Well, firstly, we need to learn to wait. I'm not very good at waiting. The first clue is in verse 5 and 6, which are on the screen. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits 
for his word. My soul waits for the Lord. More than ones who watch, wait for the morning. More than ones who watch, wait for the morning. There are five waits in two verses. That's a lot of waiting. And as caring people, when we see someone in despair, someone in the midst of depression, or in the midst of a mental health struggle, we want to help, don't we? We wish we could come up with quick fixes. We wish we could produce the right miracle or say the right words that the person would just come right. But it doesn't work like that. We have to follow the person's lead. They are waiting. This psalm tells us that those who watch, watch for the morning. And guess what? The sun always rises. It is inevitable. Every day we awake and every day the sun is there, even when it's hiding behind rain clouds for six months of the year. In England, it's more like ten months of the year. But that's our role as a community, to watch and to watch for the morning. We wait with our friend in despair and in the midst of waiting, we offer signs of hope. How do we do this? Well, we enact the mercy, love and acceptance of God to our friend in despair. We offer signs of hope. We offer visible symbols of God's mercy. At Sanctuary, we hear this again and again, but people in the midst of despair, in the midst of depression, in the midst of mental health challenges, often say that one of the most meaningful parts of the service, of Christian service for them, is communion. Because here we have a visible tangible, tactile symbol of God's mercy. You may not be able to feel God's mercy but you can take it and hold it and taste it. We presence ourselves with people so that they can see God in us. This is the incarnation. This is God coming as a human being to be with us. We do the same by being present with people in the midst of despair. Not needing to say words but presence. We care for people holistically. We offer to accompany them to see a doctor in case medication is necessary. We offer to take the person to see their counsellor. We share meals together instead of offering advice. You know, I'm nearly 37 years old and I have 37 years of giving advice. I'm an expert in giving advice. If ever you need advice, come and see me. And I've been married for 12 years and for the last 12 years, I've been giving my wife advice. I'm really good at it. And what is it my wife always says to me when she shares a problem with me and I start giving her advice, what does she say to me? I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen. That was a very feminine response there. All the women, I can see all the husbands getting a jolt in the side as their wives elbow them. But we love giving advice. But instead of giving advice, I would suggest practice the discipline of presence and wait with our friends until the morning comes. We trust together that God will speak a word of life into our friend's life that we're waiting with. Because that is what God does. The second response of the community is to listen. In verse 7 and 8, the one who is in despair at the beginning of the psalm addresses the community and says this, O Israel, put your hope 
in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. You know, I don't believe that any experience has to be meaningless. I believe that when someone experiences a time in the depths, they've also experienced the depths of God. And in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist, the very one who was crying from the depths, turns to the nation of Israel and now offers wisdom about who God is. And it's wisdom that they could only have learnt by being in the depths. In the depths we learn of God's steadfast, faithful love. And that Hebrew word is chesed. That's why I put it on the screen. And this is the kind of love that never gives up. It's the love of Hosea for his wife, even when she's unfaithful. It's the kind of love that the New Testament calls agape, illustrated in the picture of the waiting father in Luke 15. The father who stands at the gate looking for his son. His son who has basically said, I wish you were dead. But he stands there looking for his son and when he sees his son, he hoists up his robes and he sprints to his son. He brings shame and dishonour onto himself to demonstrate his love for his son. Not just to show his passion for his son, but to get there to protect his son from the baying crowds who are waiting to teach this Torah a lesson. That's the kind of love that you learn about in the death. Because when you give up on yourself, you come out of it realising that God never, ever gave up on you. What a gift it is to understand this. In the depths we learn that in God is full redemption. The person who remembers the guilt, the daily reminder of their shortcomings, now knows that God, though aware of these, has freed them and they matter no more. One who has been to the depths knows that they did nothing to earn this. They had nothing to give towards this. What a gift it is to know this. In the depths we learn that God doesn't need our help. In verse 8 it says, He himself, God himself will do it. God reaches in and speaks words of life to us when we're in despair. That is what we wait for. This reaching in is not of human doing. It is God himself. He will do it. He himself will do it. I've hurt many a friend by expecting them to get their acts together while they're actually waiting for God to work. I'm not proud of that. But God may meet us in therapy rooms, in worship services, when we exercise, around the table with friends and family. In all of these doings, we still wait for him to reach in and whisper words of life to us. And so when someone is in the depth, our response is to respect the cry that comes from the death. To wait with the person and to listen to the wisdom that comes from their experience of despair. You know, many people ask me, why do I lead sanctuary? How did this happen? And uh, the simple answer is to say, well, I applied for a job. Uh, But I don't believe... God has worked in my life like that. And before coming here, I passed to the church for eight years. I had no idea how bad my mental health was for about five years of that time. And I can pinpoint situations that occurred. 
that caused me to move to a place of languishing. Now when Fiona talks in October, and I thoroughly recommend you all come, she will give you a framework for understanding what we mean by the term mental health. But the, uh, the prelude to what she's going to share is that at Sanctuary we teach that every person has mental health. It's just, is it good or is it bad? And our mental health changes throughout situations and circumstances of life. But I spent five years languishing and I had no idea why. And after five years, it actually begins to have a very damaging effect on you. It causes you to become hard-hearted. It causes you to doubt. I wish someone had told me this stuff years ago. I wish someone had talked about this when I was starting out in ministry. And I don't have regret, and I believe maybe God will lead me back into full-time vocational ministry one day, if that's his will. But I couldn't continue without this message. I trust that you will take this message and share it with others and demonstrate it with others. There is no shame. There is especially no shame in the church. And you know, God's plans are always redemptive. I believe he has a redemptive plan for each one of us that has lived or is currently living in the depths. Let me say to you today, your suffering is not in vain. Just as his suffering was not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word promises us again and again that you are present that in the midst of struggle, in the midst of despair, you are with us. And Lord, I pray for each person here, whatever they're facing, for those that are in the midst of despair, for those that are in the midst of depression, for those that are supporting family members. Lord, above all else, I pray that they would have an acute awareness of your presence with them, walking with them, holding them, engulfing them. Lord, I thank you that at this moment, as in every moment, there is only a thin veil between us and you. We thank you for that revelation that John has in the last book of the Bible that says behind a thin veil, the reality is is that you are sat on a throne. That you are sat on a throne. Present to us, available to us in whatever we face. Lord, I pray that for this church you would bless your people and that they would become a church famed and known for walking with you in the midst and for walking with others in the midst of their pain. Bless your church. For I ask it in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.